Welcome to The Green Majority on CIUT 89.5 FM, run by the wonderful Ken Stauer, or perhaps you're listening on one of our much-loved radio syndicate partners or on The Green Majority podcast. My name is David Hostetter. I'm with Stefan Hostetter. How you doing? And towards the end of the show, we will be joined by the radio host Lawrence Neali, uh, who's from the Northwest Territories and was recently featured in a documentary called Nahani River of Forgiveness. The documentary is about the Dene people constructing and taking a moose hide canoe down the Nahani River for the first time in over 100 years. So to begin, the global system our society has constructed to keep a certain class of people in power, a certain class of people comfortable, and a certain class of people oppressed and ignored, is continuing its violent and confused flailing amidst a worsening pandemic that has quickly altered everything and shows no signs of stopping. The leaders of the free world, just south of the border, are lying about the severity of the crisis, while also cutting aid to the people who've been left hungry and jobless, battling their own citizens and local governments with shadowy military police, defying their own Supreme Court in order to keep their country as white as possible, while making things worse in those brown countries they like to exploit for their minerals they need to maintain their economic dominance, much like us, And it appears now that ICE agents, going against their own policy, are blasting refugees with cold air to artificially bring their fevers down to a low enough level to deport them, since they are not supposed to be deporting anyone with a temperature over 99 Fahrenheit. This means that U.S. agents are chilling COVID patients with air conditioning in order to deport them and worsen the spread of the disease in other countries. If you suspect that all this has nothing to do with climate change, look no further than a new report from Little Sis showing how many major American uh, fossil fuel funders like Chase, Wells Fargo, and BlackRock, as well as major fossil fuel corporations like Shell and Chevron, are giving huge donations to the police that oppress the very communities that are most harmed by environmental callousness, whether it be toxic pollution, climate change, or pandemics. These are, of course, generally non-white communities, and as The Guardian is reporting, new data from the Union of Concerned Scientists is showing how racial disparities will be made worse as climate change progresses. And as I've just stated, fossil fuel companies are privately funding the policing of the people most affected by ecological harm. Elon Musk, meanwhile, recently joked or said or joke said on Twitter, quote, we will coo whoever we want, in response to a user who called out Tesla's benefiting from the overthrow of Evo Morales in Bolivia, who was going to try to nationalize uh, control of Bolivia's huge lithium reserves and had made deals with Russia and China instead of the U.S. Lithium, of course, is essential in making batteries for electric vehicles, and Tesla's stock rose massively after Morales was exiled. The ostensible interim leader, Janine Añez, has now used COVID-19 as an excuse to postpone elections for the second time this year. 
Thousands took to the streets in Bolivia on the 28th of July to protest this postponement. And whatever you think of Evo Morales, Bolivia has decidedly descended into a period of violent authoritarianism since the coup last October. If you still think that our global power structures have nothing to do with ecocide, know that more environmentalists and land defenders, largely indigenous people, are being killed every year globally, with at least 212 dead last year, which has a lot to do with international corporations, uh, such as all the mining companies, for instance, that are based out of Toronto, trying to control the resources of less powerful countries. A coalition of human rights groups, furthermore, has recently argued that virtually the entire fashion industry, which is a major carbon emitter, is complicit in the slow genocide and slavery of the Uyghur people in China. In Arizona, meanwhile, prisoners are being used to fight climate change for free, as Steve Horn is reporting for Drilled News that the majority of firefighters in Arizona, currently fighting three historic wildfires, are prisoners who are being paid almost nothing. Horn writes, quote, Despite the rising climate change-fueled wildfire risks, the state spends far more on its prisons and law enforcement apparatus than it does on direct costs of firefighting. Arizona, therefore, spends a whole bunch of money imprisoning people uh, that it then forces to fight fires for free. Yeah. A, quick, a couple quick takeaways from, from the stories that you, that you just had, David. First, capitalists will not save us. You know, they may be temporary allies in the fight to pull money out of fossil fuel interests uh, or require better climate reporting, but to consider them anything more than that is always going to be a mistake. You, you may remember that on this show about five, six months ago, we, we covered uh, BlackRock and on all the great press they were getting, la- getting for their third, we take climate change seriously note. You know, they had sent two, two previously. This third one was, was even more dis- specific and, and declaring that they were really going to move forward on this. And people were like, oh, is this, the, is this the thing? Well, here they are, you know, giving money, giving money to giving big money to police. And a recent industry brief stated that, that a takeaway from their 2020 proxy voting, which to explain is basically if you own shares in a company, you are able, uh, you know, you're able to vote on the on the board of the board of governance and, and, and some other specific rules. And since BlackRock is such a large asset manager, they have the ability to to influence a lot of these larger companies through their proxy voting. And so that's the takeaway from their voting this year was uh, it was, quote, our house is on fire. Let's keep an eye on it. Uh, this came from Industry Report uh, as they withheld support for a vote asking J.P. Morgan, the world's largest financer of fossil fuels, to align lending activities uh, with the Paris Agreement's goal of keeping warm uh, warming below two degrees Celsius. And so, you know, here's them getting a bunch of good press for saying they take climate change seriously and then immediately voting against uh, well, withholding support for a movement to try to actually get. Uh, something that actually might lead that in that direction. There's there's a bunch of other examples of them sort of stepping back from this from this agreement. But this is exactly what people were worried about when they sort of first came out and got that good press. Number two uh, is Elon Musk must be stopped. Pardon the pun. Uh, but his anti-worker actions over the in COVID denial would be enough. But but his imperialist undertones have become overtones, and anyone advocating for climate justice has to recognize him for who he is. You know, there's no m- number of batteries or 
you know, or electric vehicles this man can build that will not make him uh, an imperialist that that legitimately is doing harm in this world. You know, you cannot be advocating for for climate justice and supporting you know, so many of, of his actions. And the, the number two is that racism and destruction of the planet are inextricably linked. You know, we've been saying this again and again, but the world does not stop giving us examples. You know, you just mentioned, Dave, uh, the Chinese government and the fashion industry teaming up to keep pumping out fast fashion at the expense of the ongoing genocide of the Uyghur people. And, you know, the shift to local economies and repairing our goods is perhaps most important in the fashion industry. You know, the fashion industry is so built on pumping things out for since you know the cheapest possible and then throwing them all out and we we simply cannot keep living in this world in this way it is you know this is the this is exactly what we're supporting when when we do so and and where we do see local leaders standing up to this capitalist machine they often pay the ultimate price you know 212 environmentalists and land defenders is an astounding number and the only way that these companies are getting away with these murders is by acting as basically invading forces while selling shares on the TSX safely here in Toronto. And so if you're looking for a more of a narrative approach to tie these together, uh, let's come back to that story of incarcerated firefighters. Yeah, this time, you know, it's in Arizona. Previously, we've talked about it happening in California. But in Arizona, almost as many as two-thirds of the, those fighting fires are prisoners. And so to put the finest of points on it, here is basically what the, the above stories indicated. J.P. Morgan Chase, BlackRock, and fossil fuel companies are massively profiting off fossil fuels that is driving and causing climate change. They are then sharing some of that money uh, with the police and the car shield state, which uses that money to over-police uh, and, over and, and send into prison black and brown bodies across the United States sending them to jail, where they are then used as firefighters to, to fight the fires that are dramatically worsened by climate change. It's a circle. It's a type of circular economy. It's the worst type of circular economy uh, of, of, of total and utter injustice. And if anyone who can see that and still come out declaring that this society is not sick to its core has some vastly different values than at least I do. So moving away from structural oppression, a new study in the proceedings of the Royal Society B in Biological Sciences is showing that wild pollinators are disappearing and that, quote, pollinator declines could translate directly into decreased yields or production for most of the crops studied, and that wild species contribute substantially to pollination of most study crops in major crop-producing regions. This means that the disappearance of wild pollinators is already contributing to a lower yield on American farms. Donald Trump has recently cleared the way for a huge mine in Alaska to dig out copper and gold, which has been opposed by locals for almost 20 years. He and his fossil fuel lawyer of an EPA chief are now also pretending to be environmentalists, claiming that their new aviation standards are more than Obama ever did for carbon emissions, which is a lie, and in fact the standards are even weaker than what the aviation industry imposed on itself four years ago. Here in Canada, Northern Saskatchewan is flooding worse this year than it usually does, 
with more rain to come. And Cumberland House Cree Nation chief René Chaboyer is speaking out about Saskatchewan's general practice of not consulting First Nations about infrastructure projects. And in some positive environmental news, the U.S. is investing $900 million a year for new conservation measures and $9.5 billion over five years on existing national parks. Progressive Democrats have introduced a bill to stop subsidizing fossil fuel companies. Deutsche Bank says it's going to stop funding Arctic drilling. Offshore wind is likely going to become the cheapest source of electricity in the U.K., and in five years, the world's largest nuclear fission, nuclear fusion facility will be completed in France, which will try to use electromagnets powerful enough to lift an aircraft carrier to stabilize the heating of heavy hydrogen atoms to a temperature ten times hotter than the center of the sun. It's intended as a proof of concept for commercial-scale nuclear fusion and the director of the project is quoted in The Guardian as saying that constructing the machine piece by piece will be like assembling a three-dimensional puzzle on an intricate timeline with the precision of a Swiss watch. Finally, Extinction Rebellion is set to return full force to the UK in September as they will try to block the British Parliament from convening uh, until the politicians agree to debate their three demands of telling the truth, acting now, and employing a citizens' assembly on climate and ecological justice to deliberate the specifics of a new climate change program that would overhaul their society. I feel like, I'm just going to jump back to the very beginning of, of that bit again, because I, fe- I do feel like there's going to be, this is one of the things where, you know, we keep talking about climate change, we keep talking about climate change, we keep talking about climate change, and then every once in a while, there's another story about pollinators that comes in. And it it strikes me as one of those things where, you know, it, it ends up being so important and, and so necessary that that while we are while we are paying so much attention to trying to stop climate change, which, which I'll go which I'll, which I'll extend to one of the reasons why we should not trust geoengineering solutions is because it does nothing to solve the the biodiversity loss that we're experiencing. And so, you know, we can have all of the sulfur in the atmosphere to ensure that our that we that we remain uh, you know, a slightly cooler earth, which will which would do some things, certainly. Now, I'm not I'm not an advocate for pumping tons of sulfur in the atmosphere for many reasons, but that would theoretically, you know, cool the earth. But it would not save the bees or do any of the types of things that we need to actually live sustainably within this earth. So whenever someone is trying to advocate for that, all we need to do is find these technical solutions, you know, like cough Elon Musk, we have to understand that there are so many other intricate pieces here at play that we cannot just rely on that.
And uh, now we're going to talk about food systems. And in the final segment, we will be interviewing Lawrence Nayali. Um, So stay tuned for that. So as the COVID pandemic has revealed some of the weaknesses in our food supply chains and highlighted the plight of the workers who make them run, various articles have come out recently in support of migrant workers and the transformation of our food systems towards social and ecological sustainability. Teresa Wright, for instance, published an article in the National Observer on the 5th of July about the migrant workers who are calling on Ottawa to provide greater protections against COVID-19, since migrant workers in Canada were already being treated quite badly prior to the pandemic that has only made things worse, with sick workers being denied medical treatment and others not being given any increased wages for risking their lives. Wright reports on the protesters who marched this month to demand full immigration status for all migrant workers in Canada in a system which currently favors wealthy and privileged migrants over others. Georgina Gustin reported for Inside Climate News on the 7th of July on how climate change is set to disrupt food supplies uh, much worse than COVID-19, writing, quote, The pandemic disrupted global supply chains, induced panic buying, and cleared supermarket shelves. It left perfectly edible produce rotting in fields and left farmers no choice but to gas, shoot, and bury their livestock because slaughter plants were shut down. It also revealed a glaring problem. Though researchers have known for decades that climate change will roil farming and food systems, there exists no clear global strategy for building resilience and managing risks in the world's food supply, nor a coherent way to tackle the challenge of feeding a growing global population on a warming planet where food crises are projected to intensify. Gustin then highlights a blueprint for overhauling the global food system that was put out in June by food and climate experts from around the world. The blueprint uh, presents a comprehensive vision of investing in new farming practices, de-risking the profession of farming, changing our diets, reducing waste, and changing policies and funding to favor social movements and innovation. In the same article, Gustin also presents three main schools of thought regarding the growing of food. There's the system we already have, which sees each region produce their highest yielding crop in a monoculture, thereby relying intensely on international trade to even out the global distribution of foods. Then there's the approach that would throw a whole bunch of new tech at what we're already doing, involving, quote, large-scale irrigation, mechanization, pesticides, and fertilizers, along with high-yielding seeds in more developing countries. Finally, there's the agroecological approach, which looks at each farm essentially as an ecosystem, growing a diverse range of crops and using fewer chemicals. Producing food like an assembly line, which is what we're doing now, is okay so long as the environment doesn't go out of whack. Gustin also points out the discrepancy between advocates of food system change and the multinational corporations that will have to go along with the changes or else be dismantled if major changes to occur. Yeah, there's. I think the, the one perhaps most damning fact about our current food system uh, beyond its, you know, 
massive implications of climate change is the fact that we actually have not experienced a real famine uh, in in decades. And what's actually occurred is that people in that in the region have the only types of famine we've experienced have been economic famines, where people can't actually just afford the food rather than actually not being enough food. And so when the question constantly comes, when you hear people who are advocating for, you know, a a more a more local food system or one that doesn't rely so so much on high yield uh, monocultures, the the argument is always, well, how will we feed all these people? And and the answer, quite simply, is we just have to stop trying to profit off of this entirely in this way. That you have to accept that there will be lower profits, uh, and we need to support the farming that would allow us to feed everyone. And and then and the other piece of it is just you know quite simply to stop m- producing so much meat. You know, obviously in in a market system, how much demand will will push it. So we so you, you probably have more impact on the demand side, but unquestionably the amount of destruction caused by by meat is is unbelievable, and so you know the the it's the food system is so complex. I won't try to even pretend I understand the whole heart of it, but there are some things that whenever you read these type of stories that come up again and again, and and those are two of them. So in an article in the Ecologist on July seventeenth favoring agroecological science in Britain, called The Government Must Embrace Fungi. Natalie Bennett argues that agriculture, as it's presently being debated in the House of Lords, does not show an understanding of the role of fungi, or even that they are a separate kingdom from plants and animals, and are actually closer to animals than plants. Darren Qualman published an opinion piece for the National Observer on the 8th of July, Uh, suggesting 10 things that Canada needs to do to secure food in the future. He argues, one, we need to stop maximizing yields and inputs and instead focus on sustainability and resilience. Two, we need to move away from nitrogen fertilizers, whose use has doubled in Canada since 1993. Three, we need government agencies to, quote, lead on-farm mitigation and adaptation oversee wetlands restoration and tree planting, manage extension agrologists and independent soil testing, and operate demonstration farms. Four, we need to do more regenerative farming. Five, we need to research and provide incentives for good soil practices. Six, we need to transform livestock operations. Seven, we need to make sure farmers don't incur so much debt. Eight, we need to uh, reverse policies that have pushed young people off the land. Nine, we need the federal government to help farmers reduce emissions from buildings, machines, and fuels. And ten, we need to democratize the food system to support local decision-making and equal access to food. William Gildea wrote a piece for The Ecologist published on the 13th of July, in which he shows the link between meat and pandemics and lists all the various diseases that have come from humans eating various kinds of meat, like HIV, bird flu, swine flu, and bubonic plague, and argues that our factory farms and fresh meat markets are just as bad for the spread of infectious diseases as the wildlife markets in Asia that we decry as the source of COVID-19, and that we may need to move past meat entirely, to protect against future pandemics. 
Clifford Warwick argued for the same publication on the 10th of July that wildlife markets in the West also need to come under scrutiny for their role in the spread of diseases and the animal suffering they cause. He too lists various diseases that have spread from animals to humans, like the Spanish flu, H2N2, H3N1, Ebola, monkeypox, SARS, MERS, and so on. And bringing back Georgina Gustin, she published an article for Inside Climate News on the 16th of July, arguing that we wealthy nations are eating our way past our Paris targets, and that we need to align our dietary guidelines with greenhouse gas reduction. She admonishes the Trump administration for not including sustainability on its topics to be discussed by the Dietary Guideline Committee, and for allowing two-thirds of committee members to be persons with direct ties to the food and beverage industry. Her article upholds Canadian dietary guidelines, which include sustainability, as a good standard for industry not influencing the process. So what I think the takeaway I have from, from the news of this show is, is something that we've said previously on this show before, but I'm just going to reiterate it again here, which is that it's one thing to to try to build back better from, from COVID-19 and, and to try to, to take on some of these these wicked challenges that that exist but i think without a cultural shift in in actually what we prioritize and in what we we care about as individuals you know we can we'll get halfway between all the way and and i think you know when you realize that that this touches food clothing uh you know the the way that we interact with each other in almost every fundamental way you get back to the fact that there has to be a much deeper conversation and solution to get there. We are here with Lawrence Nayali uh, from uh, who's who's you have your your radio show. I was going to say he was a CBC radio host um, and also is uh, featured in the documentary Nehani River of Forgiveness, which will be airing Sunday, August 9th at nine p.m. Eastern uh, on the Documentary Channel. And mm-hmm. it's a welcome to the show. Hey, thank you for uh, allowing me to be here with you. Thank you for letting me see you. <laughs> the, uh, I, like, I, I like how we're doing this on Zoom, so we can see each other. Uh, yes. and then we'll ha- everyone else just, just trust us. Um, <laughs> uh, so, so perhaps you can, we can start this just by giving us uh, a bit of an explanation as to, as to what the documentary covers. 
the documentary covers the topic on reconciliation, what that entails. What does reconciliation mean? And how do we revitalize uh, old traditions? How do we bring the integrity into cultural identity when it comes to self-exploration, uh, finding ourselves and our place in this world? Uh, the documentary itself was incredible. Uh, I believe that a lot of people that came out of it were empowered and discovered a bit more about themselves, their history, and where they want to go when it comes to our relationship with the land, the environment, everything on it, around it, and also our relationship with this country. And uh, so it was really interesting to, to see how it all came together and the vision that you know former grand chief herb norwegian had for it and i can see that he was really really passionate about this project and i can't thank him and jeff bowie and everybody involved that that, that made it happen that that brought that vision to life so uh, you know, it was good to be part of that. So the so the story sort of follows is this experience of of going of going out into the land and creating a or building a moose hide canoe. Is that that's correct? Yes. Uh, a moose hide skin boat. Yes. A skin boat. Sorry. Uh, and then and then taking that on a five thousand kilometer journey, one and, and one that has not that had not been done uh, for the last over hundred years. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. And, and and so as you like part of it obviously is as as a, that um, that this was a tradition of the Dene people uh, like like you know over a hundred years ago there's a consistent thing that was being done and then it had sort of or lost the wave of it happening uh, you know because of this colonial conversation which we'll get to in a second uh, but can you sort of describe the experience of of being on the water and being a part of that that return? Well, I want to take you back a little bit more further. So I was fortunate enough to have been raised by my grandparents. So water is something I'm very familiar with because every spring uh, through to the fall, we'd be on the river on a big 22 foot, sometimes 24 foot scow. And we would travel from our community all the way to, Rig or to Fort Simpson and then back in the fall towards Toledo and Delaney. And so uh, growing up, I've heard so many amazing stories about my grandfather's travels on the land by by himself and my grandmother's work with her community and her family. And, you know, it's just so empowering to understand how hard they had to work to bring us to where we are today. And so, you know, I, I grew up watching these old timers uh, play hand games occasionally, and when you're young, you're you're not supposed to play. It's it's meant for the older elders and adults, and so it was always fascinating. And that almost died out uh, in the '90s. And I was there when it was revitalized in the late '90s, early 2000s in Toledo, and just it was so incredible. It was so impactful. It, it started small. It was really small. It was just a couple of communities gathering. And then it turned into something huge. 
And the community itself of hand game players grew substantially. And seeing how your traditions, your language, your culture, when it comes to the drum and these songs, these ancient old songs coming together and unifying the people was powerful. And at one of these um, uh, gatherings, they, they made a moosehide skimboat and they brought it there. And there's one here in Yellowknife at the Prince of Wales Northern Heritage Center that was, I believe, made in the late 70s, uh, early 80s. And it's been housed there for a number of years. They have a film there, and I used to watch it when I was growing up, and I seen this Moose Eyes and I was like, wow, wouldn't it be something to be a part of the building process for something like this? And, you know, when I told my grandfather this, and my grandfather had built one with a shithabut in it long ago, back in like the 1920s, 1930s, and he said they used 13, 14 moose to go down the, the Keo River. And it was a long journey, but he said it was so massive. Everybody would pile into that boat. You have your dogs, your gear, your, everything that you needed to go out on the land and survive. And, and so, you know, hearing these stories and then finally being thankfully um, invited by Grand Chief, former Grand Chief Herb Norwegian and, and Jeff Bowie to be a part of this project, I, I jumped on it. I said, you know, this is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Uh, and now thinking of it, maybe it's not. Maybe it will be continued. Uh, but but that's up for individuals and communities to decide. Um, so uh, when we were constructing it and we put it out on the water, what had happened, you know, because on journeys like this, there's always ups and downs. Um, we were working on one of the hides, and unfortunately, um, bacteria got into a cut in my finger and it got infected. And so um, it was pretty interesting because what ended up happening was we, some, a few of us were left behind because they were going to bring in a, a plane to uh, fly us back to Fort Simpson for medical treatment for our infections. You know, we've we seen the, the boat. We, we helped put it in the water, but we seen it float down and uh, my heart just sank. I was like, that should have been us in that boat. You know, we really worked hard to be a part of this. And then the plane didn't come and the group decided, hey, maybe you guys can come. And so we, uh, they picked us up by boat and we went back down and we met up with the, the group and we camped there and we were just looking at this boat, just like amazing. I can't wait to get in it. And I think it was the second or third day finally when we're, we're on this journey that um, I was fortunate enough to jump in there. And just that overwhelming feeling, it's like a rush of warm, warm water going over your whole body, realizing, wow, I'm in a boat that used to be constructed by very, very old elders and people from the community from long ago. And for me, it was a sense of connecting with that past and identifying with the idea that, you know, wow, th these are very powerful, resilient people because those boats are heavy, getting the material is hard work and how everything just kind of worked together. It was just, it was incredible. And, you know, as we're, we're paddling these big oars and you hear the water 
brushing up against the bottom of the sides of the boat. You can hear the tiny little grains of sand brushing up against the sand or the, the, the moosehide skin boat. The water, it was just, it was incredible to be a part of. And uh, I feel very blessed and fortunate to have experienced that. And my hope is that, you know, for future generations, for kids, especially for young people, I hope they get to experience that similar feeling as I did. And so to put it as short as I can, it was, it was unreal. It was mind blowing for me. It was, it was so powerful and beautiful to be a part of that journey. So uh, to, to sort of switch gears to sort of the, when you sort of identified the, the original theme of the, uh, how you saw the theme of the, of the whole piece being sort of about colonialism and, and early on in the conversation a lot of that conversation was about how colonialism uh, has driven a disconnection to the land and how getting back on the land was was both an act of, of decolonial resistance in some way but also but of he- but also of healing for for people yeah what i have to say about that part of our history as sad as it is you know i am proud I am happy that our people came out of it still with the strength that they had for thousands of generations to be able to come out of it still somewhat, uh, you know, with, with somewhat of their culture and language and identity attached because we almost lost it. And, and so, you know, and then there was people that, you know, were saying that they liked going to the schools. You know, so there, there's that delicate balance uh, that I've been hearing over the years. You know, I can't speak for anyone but myself, um, but when looking at the whole, you know, history of it all, it was kind of, uh, it was sad to, to learn the history of these schools, what it's done to the people. Um, you know, even now as we're going through this whole covid pandemic you know just hearing the stories of the people that have gone through similar events back in the 20s you know there was a big pandemic that came through the north that wiped out lots of our people there's stories of people that would just go into the bush and drop dead on the trail and so you know this is not our first run with a pandemic and um it's, you know, I have the faith to believe that we'll get over this one together. And as a people, you know, the Athabascan language group, which we're part of, is one of the, hu- the huge language groups of North America. And at one time, we were all together, you know, and then events unfolded that led others groups to travel and migrate to other areas. You know, you have the Dene of the North. You have the 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 Seisi Dene, what they call them Seisi means you know people of the rising sun because they're the people that went the furthest east you know and then you have the Navajo Dene to way down south to Arizona you even have people identifying their lineage that goes even further than that in Mexico so you know for me that's the people we come from you know and and if we can relook at that 
and what it would look like if we all came together as one nation once again, what would we be able to accomplish to bring to the world in terms of you know, bringing back those teachings and understandings of how we need to maintain the balance uh, within ourselves and, and the things around us. Uh, so, you know, I like to look at it in that sense that as hard as the church and the federal government tried to rid us of our teachings, of our beliefs, of our language, of our culture, of our identity, all of these things, they were unable to break our spirits. And for me, that is what we need to be reminded of. You know, so doing things like building a Musai skimbo, taking up your drum, you know, performing hand games, going to drum dances, tea dances, powwows, you know, taking real good pride into your culture, understanding where your people have been, and that will re-instill the confidence, the self-esteem, the awareness, and all of these good things will be brought back to us. So, you know, colonialism and the whole legacy of the residential schools is still very fresh. You know, you got to look at it like we were in this very, very abusive and toxic relationship for over 500 years. And just recently, we tried to get out of that. We are now in a divorce process. And part of that process sometimes gets pretty ugly. You know, there's some good and there's some bad that comes out of it. And the problem we have right now is the abuser has no one else to abuse anymore. You know, in some cases, it's still going on today. We're not blind by that fact. But looking at it like that, you know, the, the abuser no longer has us in a grip and they don't know what to do with themselves so they give you a hard time and so we see that through land claim negotiations we see that through funding allocations and uh, programs being cut and you know just all of these things and that's part of it and we're still growing we're still trying to figure out where our role in this modern day world is and it's, you know, I have the faith and belief that uh, we'll come out of this even stronger because there's beautiful things people are doing all across North America, bringing back their old teachings, bringing back their languages, bringing back that old sacred knowledge. You know, just the other day, hockey is back on. You had that young defenseman from the Edmonton Oilers, right? Ethan Bear, who put the the old crease uh, syllabics on the back of his jersey, you see that, and you're like, "Wow, you know, we've come a long ways." And I'm glad that non-indigenous people are starting to, be, you know, understand that and, and want to be a, a part of that. And that's very, very empowering to 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 see to see unfold and there's more beautiful things and more powerful things that that are still to come out of this and it's you know i have the faith to believe that my kids won't have to see and experience the stuff that i grew up around 
you know, and that's happening. You know, the, the, we're getting the old names, the old traditional Dene names back. Like my oldest is called Natane, which is, called, you know, named after the thunder, you know, thunder child. Sakayo'on, which is my youngest, means when the, the sun rises just before uh, daylight and it kisses the top of the entire land, you know, because that was the moment he was born. Oh, wow. And so, you know, you, you, these things are, are coming back. And to think that it almost disappeared is unbelievable. But it almost did. And thankfully, the elders and the leaders and the people that were around back then, seeing forward, you know, had the foresight to understand that, you know, these things cannot go away. And they'll come back to us eventually. But they understood that you had to be strong like two people. And what I mean by that is you have one firm footing in the old ways on how to be Dene or indigenous, you know, how to be a proper human being on the land and in the community and in the world, while the other foot is firmly rooted in the education system with understanding the, the world around us because it's changing every day. And, you know, having that balance teeter-tottering between the two is, is a delicate dance. Not a whole lot of people can do it, and it takes communities, it takes support systems, programs, and resources to achieve those things. We have so much to give, give back, yeah. and, and we really want to. And that's a belief of the people I was raised around. You know, give what big game you have, you know, whatever you have, if you have an abundance of it, don't be shy or scared to give it away. That's one of the big selfless acts that we have or among ourselves is take the most valuable piece of you know, possession that you have and give it to somebody you love and honor to, to find that humility, to humanize yourself, to, to say, you know, not everything's meant to be held on to forever. You know, sometimes we have to learn to let go to make room for new growth. And so, you know, it's stuff like that when it comes to worldviews and, you know, coming out of the whole colonial and residential school systems uh, that, that, that needs to seriously be looked at because, you know, um, that balance was a little bit off for a while. And now we're understanding that balance is crucial. It's important. Yeah, I, I, I feel like we're uh, in, a, in a place in this world right now where it's so clearly broken in so many ways that, that people are starting to, to look, uh, especially, uh, you know, look at places for answers. And I feel like the kinds of, the, the kinds of teachings you're identifying seem to be really the only, the only hope for us all. So, so my, my last question is, we've spoken a lot a little about, about sort of the land and the space and, and the documentary itself does an incredible job of showing the unbelievable beauty that, that Nahani has to offer. Um, so I'm wondering if you can give us a brief story of one moment of during that trip that really will, will sit with you. My friend, that is hard to answer. There was so much, you know, from getting the material for the boat, watching Ricky Andrew, select the wood, watching the Satu Dene elders working together, you know, um, 
from completing the sewing of the moose side. You'll see that I'm seeing it because it was just like so much hard work went into that. Uh, that's a moment I won't forget getting the moose for the, the highs that were needed and just, I don't know if I should share this. Um, so I set some snares in the bush for rabbit. It's a little piece of haywire that we use to catch rabbits. And I went back there and I caught a few for the elders and boy, they were happy. And then I went far back in there because I set one way far away. And I went way back there for the last one because I was going to take them out because we're about to leave. You know, the hide's almost finished. This is a nice sunny day. It's very gorgeous. Lots of mosquitoes back there. Um, you know, and I go back there. I see the last snare. It's in a thorn brush. There's a nice, beautiful trail that was packed down by a rabbit. And it's bent out of shape. I thought, oh my gosh, I made the hole too big. It jumped through, got the back of his leg, and it triggered it and made it small. It's like, that's the only reason why I think it went like that. So I was like, okay, well, I might as well take it out. And to get there, you can kind of see it, but you have to go through this thick... Um, thorn brush with willows right so you had to go around this big spruce tree and then come out from behind it and so that's what i did i get to it i'm, I'm unhooking it you know just being as gentle as i can because my grandfather the, you know those elders from back home that taught me how to set snares they were always like be careful with rabbit's trail he likes it clean so don't make a mess and don't leave your your smell there and so what we would do is we'd grab fresh moss wipe it over our hands and make sure you know we're handling the bush and everything well being respectful right because that's rabbit's trail like you worked hard for that so i did that i took it out and as i'm taking it out from behind me in that thick brush i heard i stopped my heart went like like that I said settle down I look behind because there's one of two things that make those big noises it's a bear or a wolf or a moose or a caribou is one of those things and it sounded huge so I look behind me and piercing through the willow brush was what looked like a wolf nice gray brownish wolf just going like that. I stood up. I had my axe. And I said, one of us is coming out of here alive. So get to it. If you're coming to bother me or attack me, let's go. I said, you really want this? Come. I said, if you don't want this, go. As soon as I said that, it pranced right at me. and went under the bush. My axe went like this. I was like, ready. My legs were ready to, to kick and hit 
with an ax. What happened next was unbelievable. It went, it dove underneath thick brush and went like whoosh. And instead of a wolf coming out, two wild chickens come out instead. Two deep. And they came out and they went right around me. That's why we call it D, right? Because it makes that noise. And they were dancing right around me. And they were just like, it was so wild. It was so bizarre. And as they were doing that, the trees started swaying. Droplets of rain started coming. And the wind picked up. It was so powerful. I said, I'm not here to hunt for you. Go. And as soon as I said that, it just stopped. They both looked at me and I said, okay, we had enough fun. And they took off and they went into the bush. I thought, wow. I, I stopped for a second. I pulled out tobacco. I said, thank you for letting me see him that I put it down and as the, the 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 trees were blowing and the rain was coming across from where we were camped out was this gorgeous big mountain and the lightning was just striking at it lighting up the entire forest I thought I'll never forget something like that and so I went home and I told my sister about this and she said my grandfather had witnessed the same thing. And they say, when you see an animal change in front of you, big changes are going to come. Look where we're at today. So, you know, there's, there's moments that I have out in the land that are like that. There, there's a powerful vision I had out there. Uh, I used to share it. And then an elder came to my dream and said, you need to stop sharing that dream. That's for you. And so I stopped. I would share it here, but um, I don't know. Yeah, maybe it's, it's not wise. You're getting, you know, visits from elders from long ago telling you, don't share it, don't share it. You know, there's yeah. a reason for that happened. Yeah. Um, but, you know, uh, that's one of the moments I, I will never forget. And, uh, I'll carry with me to the grave. It's just so powerful. You know, the land out here is incredible. You know, it's a real gift that we were provided, that we were given to be stewards of, to protect, to ensure for future generations. And I, I told uh, the elders, the, the elders from uh, that were part of this group from the Satu, you know, Leon Andrew and them about these experiences. I said, I don't know why I'm experiencing these things. And it's, uh, you know, it's funny that, that I'm going through this. And he said, it's not funny. He said, you know, a long time ago when Dene used to be out in the land all the time, the land would play with the Dene people. So they finally found somebody to play with. So don't be scared. <laughs> you know, because the land and you are one. You know, if you're scared of the land, going out there by yourself alone, 
you're not scared of the land or the, the animals or the boogeyman or anything like that. You're really scared of yourself. And so sometimes to overcome that, we have to overcome that fear. We have to find the love that's waiting for us out there to receive. You know, I hope people that watch the film see the beauty of the people of the land and, and where we want to go despite all of the things that have happened forgiveness is the theme you know but more for, you know asking for apologies still needs to happen but looking at it all we have an obligation to the seven generations in front of us and so all my love all all, all my gratitude to the cast to the crew to everybody and to everybody that's watching that film thanks so much for for listeners if you want to catch this again it is uh honey river of forgiveness which will be airing on sunday august 9th at 9 p.m eastern lawrence naley thank you so much you want to hear more uh, of lawrence you have your own radio show called trails end uh which can be found as well online i'm sure yeah thank you so much uh and uh have a wonderful day 